If I were to say, prisoner 24601, would you know what I'm talking about? Uh, there's a few theater people in our presence here today. So if I say Jean Valjean, with my own worst, I'm sorry for all you French speakers, I'm sorry, forgive me, please, all right? If I say Jean Valjean, who raises their hand and says, oh, I know what that is? Yeah. Because in the beginning of the book of Les Mes, because that's all I'm going to say, because that's more French words that I can't say, so I'm just going to say that, all right? In Les Mes, <clears throat> Jean Valjean's character starts out, we meet him in the theater as being prisoner 24601. And then he becomes, through the context of the, through the, as the story unfolds, we meet him as a convict who is being released from multiple years of prison. I think 19 years of prison. And that first night out, he has, so to speak, a passport that he's been released in. And it's marked yellow, and it signifies that he is a convict. And so everywhere he goes to find a place to stay, he's turned away. And finally, someone tells him, go there. And it's the parish church. So he goes there, and they feed him. They treat him. They even call him a brother. And the house goes to sleep. And during the night, he gets up, and he, he leaves during the night with as much silver as he can take. Plates, cups, everything he can get his hands on. Fills up the bag, only to be caught. And dragged back before the village priest. And they say, we caught this man with all of your silver. And the priest comes to him and says, no, no, not by any. It's not true. He says, matter of fact, my brother, you forgot to take the very best. And with the town constables standing there, the priest walks and takes the silver candlesticks off the table and hands them to prisoner 24601 and says, you forgot these. You forgot the very best. The police stand there dumbfounded, uncertain as to what to make of it because they're sure that this man had stolen all this. And here they have the owner of the property says, no, not by any stretch of the imagination. He did not steal. This is my gift to him. And he blesses the police. He says, thank you for doing such a good job. Now, be on about your way. And they leave. And prisoner 24601 is left with this man, dumbfounded. Not sure what to make of the situation, what has just happened. Because in his world, there was no such thing as favors. There was no such thing as doing right to another man or woman or child even. And the priest says to him, let this become what it takes to make you an honest man. And the next thing you see is Jean Valjean in this internal wrestle with himself where he transforms himself from being a prisoner who was bent on revenge bent on taking what he had to take out of this world to becoming a man who is righteous, a man who is going to do good by this world, and he recreates himself. If you've never seen the movie, never seen the musical, never read the book, I haven't spoiled it for you totally. It's only like 14,000 pages long. There's plenty you haven't heard about yet, all right? 
The other character who balances Jean Valjean as Javert, the, the constable, the, the sheriff. And he believes that man cannot change. And that once Jean Valjean is prisoner of 24601, he is always that way. And change is impossible. Now, this is a spoiler, all right? So just cover your ears if you don't want to hear what I'm about to tell you. But it's been out a long time. It's your fault if you don't already know this story, all right? As the story progresses, they come to a critical scene where Javert is captured, and they say, let's kill him. He's holding his ears. All right, <clears throat> sorry. Jean Valjean says, I will take him. And Javert thinks, ah, this is what you've waited for. For all these years, you've waited to have justice against me, to get back at me. And Valjean takes him outside and cuts him loose and says, now be gone. I've given your life back to you. And in that act, he seals the doom for Javert because he doesn't know what to do with such grace and forgiveness. He's never experienced it. And it seals his own doom. Now you've got to go out and watch it. All right? Today, we're in the last of a series on worldview. Um, our previous worldviews that we've had um, up to now have been live your life to the glory of God, to live your life as an ambassador for God, to live your life as a steward or as stewards of God, to live your life making new disciples, and to live with eternity in mind. Each of those things, we've talked about how they are things that change us, that they should shape us, they should shape what we understand what our duties are, what we understand our role and position before Christ is, that understand exactly what he saved us to. We've talked about those, and today, our sixth worldview is poignantly captured in that scene from Les Mis where a man's life is transformed when he is truly the offender, and yet he's given grace. He's not punished, but he's blessed. Today, our worldview is to live a life of forgiveness. God is a forgiving God. It is, it is who he is. And from the very beginning of time, he has demonstrated himself to be one who forgives. One who is not seeking to hold man's accounts against him. One, that is one of the things that our culture, or someone's culture did it, but we've kind of adopted it and we really like it. And that's that... that we envision that God has the very latest model iPad up there because, you know, last week we learned that Steve Jobs is in heaven. We learned that rest of it, remember? He's not really. Don't go away and say I said that, okay? But that's what was in our illustration. And that he's up there with the very latest iPad, and he's like going, ah, I saw what you did, Frank. Ah, I saw what you did, Frank. Ah, I saw what Because that's what he does with you all the time, right? Absolutely. All day, every day. He's just keeping a record of everything you do wrong. And that's how we view God. He's keeping a record of everything we do wrong. Because he's going to use it against us. Because that's the way he is. Because he's all about judgment. He's all about punishment. He's all about hell. Hell, hell, hell. That's what he's about. And yet, the truth of the matter is, is that he is much more about forgiveness. And not only just about forgiveness, but he is really about forgiving someone and then blessing them. He is really about saying, yes, the silver was taken, but I'm going to give it to you. But not only that, I'm going to give you all that's left over. It's all yours. That's really what he is all about. 
That's what the story of Genesis 3 all the way through the end of the Bible is all about, is that God has sought to seek mankind and to redeem him to himself and to forgive him of his sins and to not only forgive him, but then to adopt him into the family because that's what he's done. He's taken mankind. He's taken men, women, and children who really have no interest in living underneath the authority of anyone else, who really has no interest in listening and having to take orders from anyone else because at the core of who we are, we are the boss. That's who we want to be. And he takes those people who says, I do not want you in my life. And he says to them, but I want you. And he redeems them to himself. And not only does he take them and says, I want you, he says, I for, he says, I forgive you, but he says, I want you. It's not enough that he would just forgive us and leave us on our own and turn us loose out in the pasture to live as forgiven people. Like that would work out really well. But he has forgiven us and then adopted us into his family and given us a new heart. He is about forgiving and then blessing. The word forgive in the way it's written in the Bible is a feme, a feme. And it really speaks of separation, putting some distance between something, and putting in motion sending. It conveys the basic idea of an action which causes separation. I mean, it would be, it, it's kind of like the equivalent of like, it's not enough that you, you just say, I'm going to put it there. It's not like that. It's like you're saying, I'm going to put it away from me. It's not like saying, I'm setting it aside. It's like I am dispersing it. It literally means to sin from oneself, to forsake, to hurl away, to put away, to let alone, to disregard, to put off. It conveys the basic, the basic idea of an action which causes separation and refers to total detachment. It's the act of putting away something or of laying it aside. The act of putting something away or laying it aside. So when we read the text that we started out with here today, the very beginning, where he says that who pardons iniquity and who, who cast it into the depths of the sea, that is exactly the picture of forgiving sin. It is casting it away. It is putting it as far as possible as you can imagine. God lets go of the obligation we owe him because of sin against his holiness. Kenneth Wiest, and if you are a student of the Bible, then Kenneth Wiest is a good person to know. His word studies are outstanding. His work is outstanding. And he says that God did that at the cross, which he, when he put sin away, he put sin away by incarnating himself in humanity and the person of his son, stepping down from his judgment throne, assuming the guilt of man's sin, paying the penalty, and thus satisfying his justice and making possible an offer of mercy on the basis of justice satisfied. He put himself in that place. When he put away our sin, he put himself in its place. The nation of Israel understood the, the context of forgiveness. Psalm, um, the psalmist wrote in 32.5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. In Micah 7, this is the passage we've already read in our opening time today. Who is a God like thee? Who pardons iniquity 
and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his people, possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That's what the Old Testament understood. Jesus came into the scene, and there in Matthew 12, he teaches, he says, and forgive us our debts. Here he is. He says, teach us how to pray, Lord. And what does he say in that prayer? He goes, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In John 8, he says, he who is without sin among you, be the first one to throw a stone at her. You know the scene there. Jesus is among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's standing there, and they bring before him a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. That means she was with the man, and they caught her, and they brought her before the Lord and says, she deserves to be stoned. She deserves to die. That's what your law says. That's what we all believe here, right? And then he does that thing in the dust. The big secret, the big thing that everyone wants to ask him about when we get there. What were you doing? What were you writing in the dirt then? And then he stands up and he says, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then in Matthew 18, Peter came to the Lord and said, How many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me? Up to 70 times? And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. He taught about forgiveness. Paul taught about forgiveness. And Paul, he taught about forgiveness in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Listen to this. It's a, an extended passage a little bit. Don't you know that those doing such things have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who live immoral lives, who are idol worshipers, adulterers, or homosexuals, who have, have no share in the kingdom. Neither will thieves or, or greedy people or drunkards or slanderers or robbers. There was a time when some of you were that way. But now your sins have been washed away. He talks about this is who you were. You were all these things. That sin defined you. But your sins have been forgiven. They've been washed away. In Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. Paul said. According to the riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And it's interesting to me. There's so many of the passages in the Old Testament relate to God forgiving man, but in the New Testament, so many of them are about man forgiving man. Ephesians 4, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then in Colossians 3, Bear with each other and forgive each other if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's really weird that that if is in that passage there in Colossians, isn't it? It's like if any of you has a grievance against someone. How is it possible to be human and take a breath and not eventually have a grievance against somebody? It's kind of who we are. And especially in our culture today, everybody's offended by something. Everybody. What does forgiveness look like in real life? Forgiveness is dismissing a debt. When you forgive someone, you dismiss the debt owed to you. When you receive forgiveness, your debt is dismissed and there's no payment required. In the context of our sins, in the context of our relationship with God, there is no debt required for those who have believed in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins because his death paid the penalty for us. So there is no debt owed for our sin. We, we, you're, when, when forgiveness is 
dismissing the demand on others who owe you something. You see, this is one of the parables that Christ talks about where one man is forgiven a debt he owes, and then he goes out and he demands someone else to pay back a debt that he is owed. And so he was forgiven, but he didn't go out and forgive others. Forgiveness works that way. That that which we received is the very thing we're supposed to turn around and give to someone else. So we've been forgiven. And in that parable, the man was forgiven a large sum of money that he owed to the master. And the master said, forget it. You don't owe me that money any longer. And and the man walked out and found somebody on the street who owned him a few dollars. And he said, I'm going to throw you in jail until you pay me what you owe me. He did not pass along that forgiveness. He did not pass along that favor, that grace that he himself had been given. So forgiveness means that you do not demand from others what they, you think they owe you. And then finally, forgiveness is, is setting someone free from the consequences of falling short of God's standard. It's not uncommon when you have a conversation with someone about forgiveness that says, well, if I forgive them, like, who's going to hold them accountable? Well, it was never our job to begin with. It was always God's job. Forgiveness means giving God the room and the authority and the permission to do what he was going to do anyway. What it's not, forgiveness is not fair. We live in a culture that everything should be fair. If you get 10, I should get 10. Well, actually, if you get 10, I should get 12. But that's fair. That's the way the human heart works. Forgiveness is not fair. Because, you see, especially in the context of God's economy, what we deserve is punishment. That's what we deserve. And yet what he gives us is forgiveness. It's not fair. It just doesn't equal in our minds and the way that we do things. If we're dealing with what is fair, we would all be condemned to punishment. It's not fair that Christ was put to death, a death that made it possible for us to have forgiveness. It's not fair, but it was merciful. God is not fair, but he is merciful. To forgive does not deny hurt. It does not excuse bad behavior. It is not forgetting. It is not weak. It is not natural. It is not a feeling. The story that has stayed with me for, for years and years and years, when a teenager and I read Corey Tim Boom's work, Corey Tim Boom was in the concentration camp. Her father died before they got there. She watched her sister die in front of her in the concentration camp, and she was released. She's the only family member to survive. And years later, after surviving the concentration camp, she was speaking at a church in Germany, and when she got done, a man, I envision it, you know, sitting here, and she gets up, and she's done, and one man steps forward. She recognizes him. And then she takes him out of his street clothes, and she puts him in Gestapo clothing. She puts him in the clothing of the Nazis, and the clothing that the guards wore in her camp. And she recognizes this man as being one of the men that managed Ravensbrück, where she was sentenced to live, and where eventually her sister died. This man, who stripped her and her sister and marched them in humiliation, this man who withheld care and medical needs and 
food and help that would have helped her sister survive. This man now approached her and said, I appreciate your teaching on forgiveness. I have been forgiven by Christ for my sins, the things I've done. And now I've come, and he puts out his hand, and he says, I've come and asked you to forgive me. And she writes the story, and she says, I looked at him, and all of my heart raged against him. And then all of my heart raged against me and said, how is it that you will teach what you teach? How is it you say that you follow the Lord Jesus and not extend your hand to this man? So she said, I put out my hand, not because I forgave him, not because I wanted to him to do that, because I was obeying the Lord. And she said that as she put out her hand and she took his and she held it, she said, I felt a current run down my arm. And in the moments that happened, I felt an absolute, genuine, overwhelming love for him. Feelings do not mandate who we forgive. Obedience to the Lord Jesus does. And is always his way is that when we obey, he steps in and rewards that obedience. And she says, in that moment when I obeyed, he rewarded me with love for this man. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's an act of our will to be in obedience to the Lord. And then finally, forgiveness is not an option. God commanded us to forgive others. I don't remember who wrote it, but someone says, there is no shame in the struggle to forgive because the struggle is real. Our world is struggling to understand and practice forgiveness. We are currently in a very unique place where things don't have to necessarily be proven. You are just guilty in many cases. This week, news broke that Matt Lara had been fired from NBC for sexually inappropriate behavior. And that morning when it was announced, his former co-host, uh, Savannah Guthrie, this is, this is that morning, this picture is taken from that morning, and her, they are standing there and they're reading the press release, the announcement that Matt Lair has been fired and the details they've been given. She closes well for reading that announcement and she says, this is all we know. This is all the details we have. And she says, finally, she closes her entire comments by saying this, how do you reconcile your love for somebody with the revelation that they have behaved badly? I don't have the answer to that. Where do you think the world is going to learn that from? Where do you think the world is going to learn about forgiveness? They're going to learn it from you and I. Now, then let's just pause right there. If that is true, if they're going to learn about forgiveness because we have been given forgiveness and we exercise forgiveness in our own lives. Pop quiz, self-check, look inside, answer the question. Is anybody learning about forgiveness because of the way you forgive others? If the world is going to learn about forgiveness, gut-wrenching, broken-hearted forgiveness... Are they going to learn that from you? Are they going to learn that from me? I, I will say that as, as is God's 
weird way that throughout this week, I've had more than one occasion when I've been confronted with, so what about that person? What about that situation? All week long, don't know that I've passed the grade on all of them. The world is going to learn about forgiveness from the church, from the scriptures that tell the story of a man that died for the sins of others that others committed. Gordon MacDonald says, You need not be a Christian to build houses, to feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. MacDonald has put his finger on the church's single most important contribution. Where else can the world go to find grace? That's from Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. But he didn't just forgive sin. Like I said earlier, he didn't just forgive us and then turn us loose. He forgave us and adopted us. You know, it's hard for us to kind of grasp that, isn't it? But you, can, you see it in some stories where someone has chosen to obey the Lord and someone has stepped into this gut-wrenching, broken-hearted type of forgiveness. It was just in the news just recently where a man went to court where they were sentencing the man who killed his child. And he said, I do not hold this against you. I forgive you. But in the case of other situations, like another one that I read about, where it wasn't enough that he forgave the offender, but then he sought to have a relationship with him. To bring him into his home. To be in his home. To share meals with him. That is the unthinkable, isn't it? That is God's way of dealing things. To take those who are the most offensive to him, you and I, and then to not only forgive us, but to bring us into his family. God is calling us to do likewise to those who have offended us and hurt us. In Romans 12, 14 through 21, there's a long passage here, and he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. And in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. My brother brought back a book for me from the men's retreat by the speaker this year, David Anderson, Dr. David Anderson, a pastor down in the D.C., Baltimore area. And the, and the name of the book is called I Forgrace You. Now, it's not forgive you, but he's kind of coined his own word there, I forgrace you. And he talks about this whole concept of not only forgiving, but also of extending grace and blessing those who have hurt you. And it's been really instructive for me. And, and that is this concept that Paul is talking about here. It is not enough to forgive those who persecute you, but he calls us to bless them. So what keeps us from forgiving? What keeps us from blessing our offenders? I'd like to suggest that it's the lack of understanding of how horrible our own sin is. I would suggest that it even is reflected in that passage we read where it says, do not be wise in your own estimation. As I compare myself to those around me, to those who have offended me, I see my sin as being trivial and their sin as being monumental. 
Apart from understanding this, we are left to demand justice from our offenders instead of dropping our rocks and walking away. Matthew 7, 3 through 4, it says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when behold, the log is in your eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and you will see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, assess yourself. Know your own sin, know your own offense, own it. Own it. Seek to have it be dealt with. And then you can help someone else. When we are so concerned with how we've been treated, we neglect to realize how offensive we really are. We don't see our sin because we are so consumed with the sin of others. And all that builds up into pride that robs us from our ability to forgive and to bless someone else. So we resign from true communion with others. And we wait for them to realize the damage they've done without any idea of the harm we've done to ourselves. Now, I want to pause right here and just say this. There are some of us, probably too many of us actually, that have honestly been hurt, genuinely been hurt. We're not talking about you didn't get invited to so-and-so's 16th birthday party. That might hurt your feelings, but you're going to live. We're talking about the kind of hurt that moms and dads do to each other or do to their children. We're talking about the kind of hurt that spouses do to each other. All of those kind of hurts are real and genuine and have to be acknowledged as being such. Forgiving them does not mean releasing them from the consequences always. I don't want it to be misunderstood that if anyone is ever in a dangerous situation, that they're meant to stay in that situation because God ordains you to forgive them. You never heard that here. If anyone is ever in a really serious situation where their life is at stake and being harmed, you can still forgive, but you can get yourself into a safe place and do so. Many of you never did anything wrong to deserve the harm that was inflicted on you. And God wants to heal your heart. And that healing will include forgiveness. That's the side note. I suggest that our churches are weak because we don't extend forgiveness to each other. There is a situation where I know of a church that on one side of the road is the church. And on the other side of the road is its sister church the one that broke off when they couldn't agree. If you're from the South, like some of you are, man, alive. It's like dandelions. Every corner is covered with the church that's there, and too many of them are there because people refuse to forgive, refuse to reconcile, refuse to bless the others. I believe that the church is weak because those situations exist, and we are okay with it. That the world pays so little attention to us because we can't resolve our disagreements any better than they can. There is a story in one of the books I was reading this week about a family, mom and dad, having an argument. And, and their, their relationship had been melting down over the course of time. Finally, one night, after they thought the kids were asleep, he blurts out, I hate you, I hate you, and I hate living with you. 
but he stayed. It wasn't long before, a few weeks later, he heard their little one, their two-year-old, three-year-old, saying something one night after he had gone to bed. And he didn't really make out what it was, but it caught his attention. So he went and stood by the door and cracked the door open. And he heard the two-year-old, that little child, with the same voice inflections he had used, say the same words he had said himself. Don't you wish that that parent had instead been screaming, I will forgive you at all costs. No matter what you do, I am going to forgive you and work this out. And that had been the message that that little one had heard. We have not unlearned the angry words of the world. Instead, we have cleaned them up and we've spiritualized them and we make them appear appropriate for the church. And all we've done is put lipstick on the pig, but it's still ugly. The world doesn't know how to resolve conflict. That's why there's always brokenness. But Jesus has demonstrated to us, it says, that there is going to be brokenness in your world. Your relationships are going to just absolutely wreak havoc on your life at times. But you know what? You are called to forgive. And not only that, you're called to bless those who have hurt you. And the world doesn't understand that. You heard that on the Today Show. It's like, what are we going to do now? How do we get through this when the people we love are really bad people? It's interesting that later in the morning, Kathy Lee Gifford got on and she says, the only way that we deal with this is through love and mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. She did have an answer, didn't she? But we as the church and we as Christians, we've not come to that place ourselves where we're able to do that. There are chairs that are empty here today because there are people that were sitting in this chair a month ago, a year ago, two years ago, and they didn't like what Laura said or Laura didn't like what she said, and they couldn't reconcile it. And so, boom, I'm gone. I'll just go somewhere else. I don't have to work this out. There have been so many times when I sit in a cafe or a restaurant over a cup of coffee and someone says, I'm leaving. I just can't work it out with them. I just cannot serve. I can't be in the same room with them. And I said, this is the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is the very heart of it. You are on the brink of doing something no one does. And I say, you're on the brink of forgiving someone and working through conflict and coming out the other side reconciled and forgiving them and blessing them. But no one ever does that. You're almost there. Why don't you stay and work this out? Only, only a very few ever, ever do. Only a very few ever do. Our gospel message lacks power because our lives lack the power of forgiveness as well. We wonder why they don't pay attention to us. We wonder why they don't believe that we have the power of a creator God in our life, but they don't see it in our life. What we're talking about here is something that is absolutely supernatural. It says only God can do this. We are incapable of such superhuman, divine actions of forgiving and blessing others even those who've called us physical harm or have even taken loved ones away from us. But even more important and even more difficult is to see our sin as being as as heinous and as foul as those people's sin. Too often we are like a blind man who has been healed by no power of his own, no wisdom, no money, nothing at all, but he's been healed. And then he despises those who are still blind. 
Too often, we are like somebody who had spent all of our life in a pit and could never get out. And one day, someone reached down and put a hand in the pit and pulled us out. And then we got out and said, those people are so stupid. Don't they know they can get out? When you didn't get out through anything you did yourself. We are so often people who my sin is not as bad as your sin, therefore I don't owe you forgiveness, but you sure do me. Because we're comparing ourselves to one another. But when you compare yourself to the absolute unblemished holiness of God, every single person all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are all the same. And so therefore, it is incumbent upon us. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely necessary for us that if we say that we are a follower of Christ, if we say that we are redeemed by Him, if we say that we are earnestly going to be like Him, that we forgive others who have wronged us, and not only that, but we bless them. It's only as we're in Scripture and we're growing in our understanding of the vast, consuming holiness of God that we begin to understand that we are truly wretched and totally undeserving of the merit of forgiveness and blessing. And yet that is exactly what God has given us. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for those of us who were really good. He died for all of us when we all reaped. He forgave you in the exact situation at your very worst. And now he expects you to turn around and forgive those who have done likewise and even worse to you. Because that's what he did for you. This morning, I urge you. I wish I could say with all the power of my words could have, but there's nothing I could say that would really be influential. But I do believe that there is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in this room this morning. And that there are some of us who are sitting here extremely uncomfortable with the thought of having to reconcile with someone else, of having to go and ask for forgiveness, and not only ask for forgiveness, but even bless someone else. I pray that you will yield to that Holy Spirit work in your life, and you will do the unthinkable, the incredibly hard act of forgiving those who have hurt you. I admit it is a work, but it's something you might have to do daily, every moment sometimes. But the hard work of humbling ourselves and living in our weakness can make puts us in a place where he is strong on our behalf. God is waiting eagerly for the man or the woman that is willing to trust him with their hurts, their bruises, their fears, and see him do a work in their heart that frees them to forgive others. This morning, if he's speaking to you about that, respond. Don't do the easy thing. Don't do the thing that everyone else does. Do the thing that Jesus did. He forgave you, and he blessed you. Turn around and do that to those in your life. Let's pray.